0: Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: My name is Jenna, if we haven't met. I am an intern here at Awaken, and I will be filling in for Micah as he is currently running the Twin Cities Marathon, along with like a handful of Awaken people, so Jesus be with them as we speak. Because Lord knows it is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if you were here last week, but Micah had mentioned we are starting a new series this morning. It is called Lost in Translation. Um, And what we're going to be doing over these next couple weeks uh, is examining some of the most commonly misinterpreted passages in the Bible. Um, Which I'm super excited about because... (laughs) There are, like, we can be honest that there are sometimes passages that you come across that you don't really have a context for. Um, so those are some of the texts that we are going to be looking at. Um, and I think I would also like to just say as we begin this morning, um, I speak for myself, but I am assuming that if you consider Awaken Home, one of the main gifts that I have received from being here, particularly from Micah, is this ability um, to really care and desire to know and understand and live and be faithful to the scripture, and then acknowledge this other piece that sometimes we encounter things that bring tension. Um, And so as we go through these weeks, we are intentionally looking at passages that might Um, raise questions in you that maybe you've never thought to ask before, and you might experience fear. And some of you might come from traditions where you don't ask questions (laughs) of the text, because if you ask questions, that means you're asking questions of God, and that's not what we do. Um, And so I would invite you to engage those things this morning. Um, That's the beauty of getting to do this together. So this morning, our passage is 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can open those. Um, And if you are able, I would invite you to stand this morning. Uh, I want to start just with some prayer. And then I will read the text. Jesus... I ask for your words this morning. I ask for open hearts and open minds, and I ask you to do something that only you can do, God. Thank you for the gift that you are. Thank you that you are good. God, help us to be present and aware of what you are doing in our lives and in this world. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So if you want to stay standing, um, the passage is going to be on the screen, and hear the word of God this morning. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. You may have a seat. So... I think there's been a mistake. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who gave me this microphone. <laughs> so maybe just sit down. I don't really know how to handle this. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I know who gave me a microphone. It was Nicholas. <laughs> so this is a really big one today, you guys. Um, I'm not sure how much experience you've had with this passage, but I've had a whole lot of experience with this passage. Um, And you know, my guess is that if you are at Awaken, or if you grew up in the covenant denomination, women in ministry is probably like a non-issue, and for some of us, it might still be an issue. Um, And I would just say, for both sides, if I can polarize an already polarized issue, Um, kind of the hope of today, you may or may not know why you think the way you think. Um, And the hope of today is to add another level of understanding um, and hopefully maybe even some challenge um, to how you have held this text. Um, There are a lot of ways this text has been used and understood. And so what I want to do this morning is just begin with exposing you to kind of the two typical ways this passage has been understood. And so on the one hand, this text is understood as Paul making like a blanket statement about the role of women in the church. And so as we look at the New Testament and all the places where Paul seems to prohibit women and says women can't speak, they are to be silent in the church, they can't lead, there are quite a few of them. And so people will look at it and understand what the scripture is saying is that Paul is prohibiting women from being in leadership in the church. And then on the other hand, people argue that, this, that Paul is making a contextual argument. Because the truth is, is that there are just as many places in the New Testament where Paul seems to be affirming women in leadership. At the end of Romans... He affirms Phoebe, a deaconess, and he uses that title. He calls her a deaconess. He affirms Priscilla and Aquila in that same passage. affirms her leadership. He affirms Junia, an apostle. In Galatians, he says, In Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. And so people in that camp take all of that and say... The places where Paul seems to prohibit women, it has to be contextual. It has to be specific to a time and a place and a circumstance that he is speaking to. And I would imagine it's probably pretty obvious how I land on the issue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I want to teach why. Um, And what I think Paul is doing And why I don't think it is gender that determines how one is gifted. It's the Holy Spirit that gifts. And to do that, I want to start by engaging um, kind of the side that says that Paul is making this blanket statement. And so let's just, for a minute, assume that Paul is making this blanket statement. So... Um the truth is is when you read this passage and you do not consider the culture and the context that Paul is writing to, when you do not consider the culture and the context that we come to the text in, I can kinda understand why people think it it says what it says. Um the plain reading of the text. I understand why people are uncomfortable with women in leadership, to be very honest. But where it breaks down for me is if that's true, and if Paul is saying that women can't lead, how do you apply that? And that's where it breaks down for me. So women in the room, what does that mean about what God is calling you to in the roles that you play? And men in the room, what does that mean about how you're supposed to relate to women? What do you teach your kids? About who they are and what is expected of them. And even bigger, what do you do with a God that doesn't make men and women equal? And I know that people say, no, 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 Jenna, I I don't think you're quite understanding, because men and women are equal in their standing in Christ, but in their role, that's just what's different. That's just what's different. I feel like I've heard that before. Separate but equal. Ooh. (laughs) What do you do with a God that does not consider the voice of a woman worthy to teach or worthy to exercise authority? And what comes out of trying to apply this passage is a list. And I actually mean that. And I'm not trying to present this in a way that like, oh, look at those idiots that don't know what they're doing because it's a hard passage. Um, This is from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in an article entitled But What Should the Women Do in the Church? And so what this article is proposing, they make a list of just general roles that are possible in the church. And so the seminary... A president, the president of a denomination, a pastor, an elder, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher. So there's this list of all these possible roles that people in general can play in the church. And then there's a spectrum. And on this side of the spectrum, it says, Paul explicitly prohibits. And on this end of the spectrum, it says, Paul explicitly allows. And so what you do is you go through the passages and you apply these roles to this spectrum, and if it's on this side, it's not okay, and if it's on this side, it is okay, and if it lands in the middle, maybe it's okay. So let's just take an example. Let's say Sunday school teacher. Great. So I'm a female that wants to teach the children. Great. You can do that because it doesn't seem that Paul prohibits that. But then you have to ask the question, at what age does a boy become a man? Because I'm not allowed to exercise authority over a man, so let's just say 13 to be safe. (laughs) There might be disagreement on that. (laughs) So under 13, good, we're safe. Junior high, high school, no dice. Glad that's settled. And I, you know, and I, again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of this point of view because there might be some of you in this room who have examined these passages and you land in that camp. And I'm not here to try and change your mind, but I think we can agree that when you try and apply an understanding like that, it's, it's hard, and I think it's probably a little more complicated than it needs to be. I think when we start to add lists and spectrums, like you're making an already confusing thing more confusing. And so what if there is another way? What if Paul is saying something contextual, specific to a particular time and place? Um, And so what I want to do is begin by setting up some context. The last thing I want is for you to walk away this morning feeling like you need a Bible degree um, to understand what's going on. So I'm just going to give you a little set of tools that you probably already know. I don't know if you remember in elementary school, when you would approach a story, you would ask the questions, who, what, where, when, why? That can be very, very helpful when you are looking at a more difficult text, Because 90% of the time, the text, the book is going to tell you and answer those questions for you and set you up to be a good interpreter. So we are going to look at just the first seven verses of this book. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to look yourself, 1 Timothy 1 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, writing a letter to Timothy. Great, got that. In verse 3, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Timothy's in Ephesus. Second question answered. So that... You are about to hear the reason. Every time you see a so that, that gives you a hint that this is the reason why Paul is saying what he's trying to say. So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And some have departed from these, and they have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Have you ever had to learn from someone that doesn't know what they're talking about? It's awful. (laughs) And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy And it sets up why he's writing this letter, to address false teachers in the church. And so as a good reader and interpreter of this book, that should be in the back of your mind as you enter into every single piece of this passage. And so what I want to do is just take us to an even deeper level here, and I want to give you three things that I think can help us situate um, what Paul is trying to do in our passage. And so Timothy is in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus is one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. And in the first century, it was guessed to be about 100,000 residents there. Um, One of the things that that Ephesus was most known for is the goddess Artemis. And so if you look here... That might look familiar to some of you in history books or if you've had the chance to go to Ephesus. That is the temple of Artemis that is in Ephesus. Um, It is four times larger than the Parthenon that is in Athens. Um, And actually in Acts 19, there is this little incident that happens um, that I just want to read to kind of capture um, the influence of the temple and Artemis in Ephesus. And so, Acts 19, 26 to 28, um, what's being depicted? So, there's a guy named Demetrius who basically um, makes shrines to Artemis. That's like his job. And he is reacting to Paul and the spreading of Christianity in Ephesus. And so, starting in 26, this is Demetrius speaking. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's what Paul said. Um, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians." And so I think you can kind of hear like the influence of this cult that is worshiping in Ephesus. Not only is it important culturally, but it's a great source of revenue. Um, so it's huge. Second, I want to point out some crucial things about the nature of Artemis. Um, Artemis is the goddess of fertility. Uh, She was worshipped as a virgin. It was thought that she had the power to give life and take life, so it was very common for women during labor to call upon her um, for help, uh, to ease the pain of labor, um, to speed things up. (laughs) People who have had babies, <laughs> I'm sure you know, and that's a desire in that moment. Um, and then also to call upon her for a quick death, if it came to that. Uh, what is unique about the Artemis cult is that it was entirely run by females. Um, and if there were males participating, they were in a subservient role, um, people would actually come and engage in temple prostitution, Um, They would pay a high priestess for sex. And by doing that, that was a part of like a reenactment of spring in which Artemis blesses the earth um, with new life. And so you can see that that there is a very particular culture um, and expectation that that Artemis uh, is affecting here. Um, And the third thing I want to mention is uh, something called Gnosticism. So, has anyone heard of that? Yeah, it's kind of, so, some of you may or may not have heard of Gnosticism, but it's actually a very, very important um, thing to kind of know about, because throughout the New Testament, uh, Gnosticism is commonly combated. Um, And just a very basic understanding of what Gnosticism is, is it's this worldview ...that sees the material world as very bad. And what you are to do is to ascend to a higher knowledge, or gnosis... um, ...and kind of lay off the the flesh stuff. Um, And so what is even more interesting... ...is that the Gnostic creation account says that Eve is born first. Um, Eve was actually the one that gave life to Adam... She's represented as a heroine in Gnosticism because she desired knowledge or gnosis. Um, And so when Paul is referring to these false teachers in the first seven verses of this book, uh, and he's instructing Timothy on how to handle these false teachers, it is likely that he is both referring to the mythology of Artemis and the Gnostic influences that are perpetuating the day um, in the church community at Ephesus. And so when we consider all of this, the culture at Ephesus, the Artemis cult, I think we have a better lens to engage our passage today. Um, So when Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, I think Paul is addressing this group of women who are false teachers being influenced by these things and telling Timothy how to correct it. The word translated, assume authority... Um, it's actually the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. Um, other times when Paul is referring to authority, he uses the word exousia, which kind of just has a general um, understanding of authority and power and influence. Um, but here he uses the word authentein, And that has this emphasis of abuse, of understanding one's own self as the source of authority. Um, The King James Version actually translated usurp authority instead of assume authority. And so these people are teaching things that aren't true. These women are doing it in an abusive way. And so Paul tells them to be quiet, (laughs) which I think makes sense. I I sure hope (laughs) that he would do that. Um, as someone who is leading. Um, but what's very interesting about the passage is that Paul says that these women should learn in full submission. Um, Paul's a Jew. And the context that Paul is coming from, women don't learn. Women don't have the status to be considered learners. And so the fact that Paul is saying, no, I want you to learn. I just don't want you to abuse the people around you as you're learning. I see him as elevating these women and, and not prohibiting them in a way that's like, never again will you ever be able to exercise your gifts. Um, and I just think it makes sense that like you can't teach until you have something to teach. Like, don't run around and tell people wrong things. Wait until you have learned, and when you have learned, then you can teach. Um, Paul illustrates this using the order of creation. So if you remember from our passage, so Adam being born before Eve. And he's using creation order like this is why you do it, which actually doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't know if you remember Genesis, but humans are made last, so there are a lot of things made first, and if he's saying that the things that are made first have the most authority, then your dog is in charge of you. <laughs> so uh, great, Paul, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, he talks about how Eve sinned first. Um, but in Romans, he doesn't even mention Eve. He says that it's Adam that was the sinner. So did he change his mind about how he feels about that? Um, and, and so in all of this, I think Paul, again, is addressing the Gnostic account of creation in which Eve is given supremacy. I think he's addressing the mythological influences of the Artemis cult. That give primacy and authority to women at the expense of men. The women who call on Artemis in childbirth don't need to call on her because it is through faith and love and holiness that they will be kept safe. They know Jesus. And so, I don't think Paul is telling all women they can't teach or lead. Instead, he is correcting an abuse of power. And he's telling Timothy how to do it. He's coming alongside this young leader who is ministering to a mess of a church. And so, I think there is another way to understand and interpret this passage that doesn't make us ask the question well, what do you do with the women? Where do we draw the line at what the women can and can't do? How do we keep them from going too far? I don't think Paul is trying to answer that question. And as sure as I am about my understanding of this text, and as much as I have read and studied and wrestled and prayed and, and wondered if I was just trying to hear what I wanted to hear, I would be lying if I did not acknowledge how I come to this text. So I'm going to be really honest with all of you, um, which is one of my strengths and weaknesses. Sometimes makes for an awkward life. (laughs) 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 I really had a hard time with this sermon. Uh, It was really painful and really difficult. And a lot of times when I do this, I ask the question, what is the word for the community? What is this about? What do I need to hear so that I can speak? Um, I didn't know until Friday. (laughs) I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know if this was a sermon about how women are allowed to be pastors. I didn't know if this was a sermon about how the Spirit gifts I didn't know if this was a sermon about learning how to interpret and understand scripture better. And it became more and more clear that the only way I could get up here and teach this sermon is if I told you something I don't want to tell you. The only way I could come up here and preach this sermon is if I do something that they tell us not to do in seminary. If you ever get to take a preaching course, which, <laughs> let's hope you do. <laughs> um, one, of the things you <laughs> one of the things you talk about uh, is, like, how much of yourself do you share? And so some people say, like, you should be a robot. <laughs> Don't share any of yourself. And other people say, you know, no boundaries. But one thing that they do say, and, and I certainly agree with this, Um, they say you should never teach from a wound. Because when you speak from that place, you maybe are exposing yourself in a way that's not very healthy. Um, They say not to do that because it's important to have a boundary, to make sure that you aren't expecting the people that you're speaking to um, to be able to heal or fix that pain in you. But I think I need to show you the wound in this one. Um, and not because I need you to heal me or fix me, but because I think what is bigger and beyond the wound in what I bring to this is how our interpretations and understanding of this book can do the opposite of what God intended when he chose to reveal himself to us through words. And he put these words in our hands to be interpreted and prayed through and told again. But what happens when the words and the story of Jesus who came for us and who loves us and who acted on our behalf and who calls us individually and collectively to tell a lost world who he is and who we are because of it, what happens when those words wound and kill and hurt and delay God's children from stepping fully into who they are called to be? What happens when that is true? And I think we all in some ways hold some of that. I sensed God calling me to seminary uh, and to ministry when I was 19. Uh, I was at North Park University in Chicago. um, And without going into all of the details, um, I felt like I had purpose for the first time. Let me just uh, remind you of when you were 19. (laughs) Um, if you grew up in a culture that gave you choice uh, on what to do, like any direction is so helpful. <laughs> and I felt like I had been given that direction. Um, I sensed a call. And, it, and to be clear, it wasn't because I was being called to ministry, it was because I was being called. And when I say call, I mean you realize that there is something inside of you that is useful. And that God has given you for a purpose. And we are called to a lot of things. You don't just have to be called to ministry in an official way. It was the first time I felt like God had given me something and shown me that what I had was of use. All of my cards were on the table. Whatever you want. Jesus. And I sensed that he just kept saying, ministry, Jen. Love my church. Use what you have for my people. Yes. Yes, God. And so at the end of that semester, my dad um, came and picked me up and drove eight hours to Chicago to pack up his truck and drive eight hours back, talk about the thankless job of a parent, where, like, he was just told that's what was happening. He wasn't asked. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, and I was so excited to tell my dad about, you know, the sense that I, I had and this purpose that I felt for the first time. And, and the thing is, is in, in my relationship with my dad at that time, faith was the thing we connected on. And I was really excited to tell him about that. Um,
0: Sorry. That conversation uh, didn't go the way I thought it would. And honestly, I don't really remember the words. What I remember is... The silence. Um, And feeling like my heart was bleeding for the remaining four hours home. (laughs) Like, not a good idea to bring up a
1: potentially hard conversation when you're in the car for eight hours. (laughs) You can't leave. You can't dramatically slam a door. Like, the most you can do is jump to the back seat, and that's kind of an awkward move, (laughs) especially when you're six feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, my dad was not the only one to question me and to wonder about what I was hearing from God. Um, He was just the first. And that dynamic has really changed. Um, He came to my first sermon uh, he has been very vocal and verbal about his support of me. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to to share that with all of you and so a few weeks ago i just I feel like it 's only fair to ask if it 's okay to share something like that in front of people um, and so I did, and this conversation got brought up again for the first time in ten years and what I learned is that there was still some discomfort for my dad. There were still some unresolved things um, in his understanding of, of women and, and the role they play in the church. Um, and so that that wound that I thought was so healed, which was the reason why I even agreed to do this sermon <laughs> because I felt like I was finally in a place to be able to to speak um, and to talk about it without bringing all my crap to it. But all of a sudden, it was bleeding again. And to be clear, the wound is not because it's from my dad. Let me say that again. It's not because it was from my father. It's because I was reminded that there will
0: always be people will see my gender before they see Jesus. And I've worked really hard to not see my gender as a burden or a problem because I feel like God isn't trying to figure out where to draw the line with me. Um,
1: And with one comment, it's like I fell down the hill again. Uh, But something that has kept coming back to me in that conversation with my dad recently, um, he said this, Jen, the fundamentalism I grew up in runs so very deep. My dad was one of eight. He was a pastor's kid. My grandfather would turn over in his grave if he knew I was up here this morning. That was like his thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're talking about Jesus, it's a woman. <laughs> and I realized that my dad is wounded too. This has cultivated frustration and anger as he is working through the ways that he is interpreted and understanding that is not life giving. And as we continued to have a conversation this week about how the most recent conversation affected me, he was so broken and so remorseful. And he saw the effects of what he was given and recognized his own responsibility that a wound was reopened. So my guess is that it is not just me and my dad who maybe have experienced hurt and pain from the way that we have understood this text. Um, Maybe we have received understandings that have caused hurt. Maybe it has caused delay in entering into God's calling you to be free in your life and in your gifting. I am of the conviction but that is the greatest and strongest work of the enemy when these words bind up and constrict and keep and prevent the God behind these words from being revealed in a way that is true, in a way that gives life, in a way that gives freedom. That is the story of Jesus setting captives free. I find it so reassuring and ironic That the way the freedom in life in Christ comes is through his wounds. It is in his death. It is in his suffering. It is in the bleeding wounds of God that we find healing and refuge. Who is this God that carries our wounds with us and then forgives us when we wound others? I need him. And so I would like to invite John, Mark, and the band up as we close this morning. Um, and I want to transition us to a time of silence. Um, to pay attention to some of the things that were maybe stirred in you. Um, and to respond to the Spirit and what God is doing in our lives. So pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are good news. And we hold our wounds up to you, Jesus, and ask you to tend to them in the way that only you can do. God, I ask for your spirit to blow a fresh wind on things that are tired and dead and stale, to the places that are hurting and need healing, to the places where we rejoice, God. Be present to us in this moment as we are present to you. Friends, as we close this morning, um, we're going to sing the doxology together. And I would bless you and trust the work that the spirit is doing inside of you trust the things that get brought up that hurt you are being invited into healing Jesus is the God that heals and so together with each other Let's sing
0: to him. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.